Hi, it's Jaja, host and producer of the Your Broccoli Weekly special, Generation Windrush. In July 2021, at the British Podcast Awards, we won the gold for the best current affairs podcast. Thank you. Thank you all who listened and those of you who are visiting this podcast for the first time. Many thanks to the team, executive producer Tony Phillips, to Hannah Walker-Brown for the brilliant sound design, and to Renee Richardson and the team at Broccoli Productions. I mostly want to thank the Windrush generation and to take a moment to reflect. What a year it's been. At the time of the recording of the episodes in April 2020, the Windrush Lessons Learned review was published in order for the Home Office to understand where they went wrong. One of the points of advice was to admit that there were elements of institutional racism whilst dealing with those wrongfully deported and detained. In response, the Home Office vehemently denied this case. In the present day, unfortunately, we haven't seen much movement in the cause for justice, with many still waiting for compensation two years later, many lives lost, and people on the front line tirelessly fighting for this cause. As the public, yes, we can celebrate Windrush Day and commemorate those who have contributed so much to this country. However, injustice is still very present. We thought it makes sense to republish these episodes for you, to listen or re-listen, so please take it in and exercise thought for those treasured people who are part of the Windrush generation. From your Broccoli Weekly, this is Generation Windrush, a two-part documentary special, and I'm your host, Jarja Mohammed. So it feels like almost every other person in the UK, in cities, towns and villages across the country, had joined up to spend their Thursday evenings clapping and cheering out of windows on doorsteps in support of the National Health Service staff. 2020 will be the year in which the NHS has defined this country. The doctors, nurses, nursing assistants and porters right on the front line of this COVID-19 crisis. I actually don't think there's been a time in my life that I've been so confused about what was going to happen with my future. But it does bring me comfort knowing that we are supported by the NHS staff. For me, when I think of the NHS, my mind goes to my grandparents' generation to those who played a key role in helping to set it up in the 1950s and 60s and served the nation for so many years of their lives. Another story that came out in the midst of this COVID-19 crisis that kind of went by without a mention was the publication of the Windrush Report. It was the end of a scandal that tarnished British politics, the governing Tory party, and most importantly, the lives of many elderly West Indians who ended up being deported back to countries they hadn't lived in for decades or threatened with deportation. It ruined many lives and destroyed many families, and I don't want their story to go unnoticed or unheard. Before we delve in, I want you to take a moment to picture yourself in this position I'm about to describe. You've just made a huge decision to leave your small Caribbean island, where you've lived most of your young adult life. It's very green, fresh, full of sunshine but there's been an invitation to move to the mother country for a better life. So you choose to go for it and to move to a country you studied and read about. People talk about the streets of London being paved with gold. It's a strange land, 
promising prosperity and good employment in the land of hope and glory. So this is why, at Brockley, we're spending time over this two-part series exploring the lives of the people, the Windrush generation, who helped to build the country we now live in. One of those health service pioneers I've had the honour to speak to is Alison Williams. She spoke to me about her experiences of coming to England in the late 60s. I came to London, to England, during the Windrush period in 1969. So that put me as a member of that category. I had an interesting journey coming through to, to London to do nursing because I spent a long time working as a, a career civil servant before deciding at 21 to change careers. Um, and all it was was that I wanted to be like my mother. My mother was an incredible human being who was very inspirational and very encouraging with everything I ever did and everything any of her five children did. And I wanted to be like her, and I used to follow her quite a bit as a youngster when she did clinics and when she delivered babies, etc. And I thought it must be the most wonderful career to have in the world. There had been a drive from England because the British were looking for people from the colonies to come to help develop the country after the Second World War, and especially the National Health Service. So it was quite timely for me to decide that I would go at that time and, and um, forge my career in nursing and midwifery. I also felt very special, actually, that we were taking on this really, really heroic challenge and coming up to England to help the British develop the NHS. And so I decided that I would come to London. And I did that. But I had quite a lot of expectations about coming to London or England. I thought it sounded like an amazing place. You know, to put it in perspective, all of my secondary school education was based on the English system. So I knew everything about all the tourist attractions, about all the kings and queens, all the history, the literature, Shakespeare, everything um, was English-based. In June 1948, the merchant vessel Windrush, where the term originates, made a 5,000-mile journey from the Caribbean to England with 500 passengers. Made up mainly of ex-servicemen on board from Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago and a few other islands. The passengers on board the Windrush were invited to come to Britain after World War II, as there was a shortage of labour. In the 20 years or so following the arrival, thousands more West Indians arrived, and made up mainly of skilled workers. Collectively, they became known as the Windrush generation. This was a wave of migration that brought half a million Caribbean people to Britain. The country would be changed forever by their arrival, and by their children, and now by us, their grandchildren. I met a lot of um, fellow Trinidadians, especially, and it was quite extraordinary because even though Trinidad is quite a small place with only about a million inhabitants, none of us knew each other. To put it in perspective, my, my class had 30 
um, students, 13 nursing students, and 16 of us were from the Caribbean, 14 from Trinidad alone. And then we had girls from Africa, Persia, Malaysia, Singapore, and Ireland. And there was one single lone English girl in the, in the group. You know, it was very uplifting because we didn't actually feel very lonely, most of us. We were able to bear the, um, the racism and the problems that we coped with um, as we trained. The food itself, especially lunch and dinner, was so different to anything we'd ever had as West Indians. Um, you know, it was like the opposite derivatives of what we, we used to, a lot of rice. And there were a lot of potatoes instead. And, you know, our provisions were quite um, heavy, kind of heavy duty stuff, which was nice and tasty. Um, but, you know, they used so much like things like cabbage and broccoli that I had never really been used to eating like that. I mean, cabbage and potatoes. Cabbage we put in, in um, coleslaw and, um, and potatoes we only ever ate in potato salad or curry. You know, not as a main staple, you know. Alison told me about her experiences of training as a nurse in London. When we got out of the classroom and went onto the wards... I, you know, I had another culture shock because even the staff that you're working with asking you, where is Trinidad? I mean, some of them were quite knowledgeable because they had worked with West Indians before. But the patients were the worst, you know, asking what part of Africa, what part of America, what part of Jamaica was Trinidad? And you thought, my goodness, you know, these... <laughs> These people don't know anything. And they would ask you, you know, very you know, things like how how do you live and where where are, where do you put your tree houses and where were the best places and how did you get up? Did you build your make your own ladders or or you know all sorts of, or did you just climb? And I thought, but you know, where are these people from? How come they don't understand? You know, that Trinidad is very well developed, but, you know, we're, we're quite worldly and we're just really a smaller place than they were, you know. And so I used to find that quite insulting and quite worrying. And then the, the, the racism, the actual physical racism, where people would slap your hands away, you know, telling you, oh, don't touch me, the black is going to rub off on me i don't want to be dirty and you know you're dirty with that kind of that color skin and and you know they used to think about you know what color and say things like oh what color is your blood it couldn't be red blood like ours it must be black or it must be dirty and it was really strange and i used to get very depressed from that very that was the most depressing time um like the first year of my training when people still behaved like that or maybe six months because i got angry one day on the ward and i think it was my saving grace when um this man you know called me a black bastard and you know why don't you go back where you come from um and i said 
you know, I am sick to death of you calling, you people calling me black. And I got very angry. I thought I would be in big trouble. And I said, I am 21 years old and I know that I am black. Tell me something I don't know. Tell me something new. And that actually stopped them in their tracks. And for the time, the rest of the time, nothing bothered me. It, it, it's like it gave me, you know, this permission to do my job properly now and and really get on with things and, and make a new life for myself and um, and just leave these silly people alone. Many experience racism, discrimination, and often found it hard to get an adequate home to live in. I looked to a second-generation Windrusher for some insight into the wider experiences of West Indian newcomers to Britain. Uh, my parents are Jamaican. They both came from Jamaica in the late 1950s, and uh, they produced seven children. I'm the middle child, number three, and I'm now on my fifth book, Homecoming, which is a oral history of Caribbean migration to Britain. Colin Grant is a historian and author. His book Homecoming is made up of scores of interviews from the Windrush generation, documenting and preserving their experiences of coming to Britain. When I was growing up in Luton in the late 1960s and 70s, we didn't have television until 1972 in my Jamaican household. And all the people that were around my my mum and dad, my mum was called Ethlyn, my father was called Clinton, but his nickname was Bad Guy. He was called Bad Guy because he had bags under his eyes all the time. And when I was growing up with these wonderful Caribbean people, these adults, they were to me like stars. They were our television. They were so dramatic and funny and mischievous and witty, sometimes rude, very direct, but always lovely and livening. And they all had these wonderful nicknames as well. There was a guy called Shine, who was bald, obviously. There's another guy called Anxious, who's always very anxious. Uh, Tidy Boots always was fussy about his footwear. Clock had one arm longer than the other. And my all-time favourite was a guy they called Summerware. And when Summerware came to this country from Jamaica in 1959, he insisted on wearing light summer suits, tropical suits, no matter the weather, come hail or storm. And when I was researching this book, Homecoming, I asked my mum, well, whatever happened to Summerware? And she said, well, boy, within a few months, he caught a chill and died. And although it's kind of sad, it's also kind of funny and wittily, wittily funny, I think, that she said it. She didn't say it to get a laugh. She just said it straight. And that's the other thing I love about these Caribbean people. But they say things straight, but actually there's a lot of humour in, in, in their outlook. So when I was uh, thinking about all the people that I was surrounded by when I was growing up, I thought, wow, I haven't seen these stories written very much or talked about very much in the popular press or in books even. I mean, there have been books in the past, a famous book by a man called Sam Selvon did a book called uh, Lonely Londoners. And of course, people might know of Andrew Levy's book, Small Island. But actually, outside of a, maybe a handful of books, there were these personal stories, which I knew were very rich and rewarding. So I was determined to hoover up some of these interviews, because I had recognised that now these people who would have come in the 40s and 50s, and now in their 80s and their 90s. So they're towards the ends of their lives. And I recognise that uh, all my life I've felt that there's been this absence of stories 
stories not just to support and sustain me and my siblings, but also stories that I want to pass on to my children and maybe to think about them passing those stories on to their children. I feel very strongly that I have to be a kind of modern-day griot, as Bob Marley say, half the story hasn't been told. So in a way, I'm telling my story. And I think I'm pretty equipped to tell the story. I mean, sadly, um, I may not sound as if I'm from the Caribbean, but I know how to write Berlingo. I know how to communicate with people. And I know that I can push beyond the cliches. So, for instance, Judge, when I was growing up, um, you might have heard this phrase when it comes to people from the Caribbean in the 50s and 60s trying to find accommodation. No blacks, no dogs, no Irish. And that refers to the little notes that are left in windows of people who are going to rent out a room or even in shop windows. And and so I interviewed many people who who had this experience of having these doors slammed in their faces. Now, one woman I interviewed was uh, this amazing woman called Joyce Estelle Trotman. She's 92, she's from Guyana. Um, she's a teacher, a wonderful teacher of the kind of ER Braithwaite type. She was telling me about the number of times that she would see an advert for a room to rent. And she said she would ring ahead and alert them to her colour just to get that out of the way so that she wouldn't get up there and be rejected. And she told me that till today, 60 years later, she can't climb the steps and knock on a front door of a house of a stranger if she suspects the door will be opened by a white person. So the trauma is deep. It's embedded in people's souls. And I don't think that's quite been realised. I had in mind this very famous phrase by this great Nigerian writer called Chinua Echebe. And Chinua Echebe talked about uh, whose story is it anyway? He talked about the importance of storytelling for black people. And he said this, he said this, until the lions have their own historians, the story of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. So time and time again, I think our stories have been told by white people or English people or European people with their own perspective. And sometimes we become even the kind of subplot to our own stories. So I was determined to make sure to tell the stories from an African-Caribbean perspective, to tell the story from the inside out rather from the outside in. I appreciate the work Colin has done, working hard to preserve the stories untold of these pioneers, which resonates with me strongly. And it makes me reflect on the stories my own grandma would tell me, as she is also from the Windrush generation. She described the hardships and some of the joys of coming to England, like having to share a room with another couple, where they would sleep in a day while she worked, and they would work at night while she slept. I could only imagine the many sacrifices she had to make merely to survive. Colin feels that there is a great importance in archiving the stories of this generation. This brings visibility to their own reality, whether it's their joyous characters or the emotional pain that many had been feeling. When I interviewed these elderly men, I was really surprised that I made so many of them cry. What I hadn't realised was that when these people left the Caribbean, sometimes they were just teenagers. 
And they always had the idea that they would go back. In Jamaican parlance, we say that we'd work some money and then go back. Work and prosper, save and prosper, and then return. But sometimes, by the time they saved up enough money to return, their parents had died. And that's when the tears came, unbidden. Floods and floods of tears. The last time they'd seen their father or their mother was when they waved them off from the harbour to come to England. And I'll never forget those moments, actually. I mean, I found them very poignant and powerful. And I felt very privileged to be in the company of people who were able to cry and able to reveal their emotional heart, to reveal their emotional lives. The Guardian newspaper broke a story in the spring of 2018, which claimed that people from the Windrush generation and their family members were being wrongfully deported. It leads back to 2010 under Theresa May, who at the time was the Home Secretary, and on her watch all the landing cards had been destroyed from the 50s and 60s. These landing cards were absolutely essential because this was the last remaining proof of a Windrush's arrival date. So their right to remain in the UK was in jeopardy. Their legal status had changed instantly, despite them living, working and paying tax in Britain for the majority of their lives. They were told they needed evidence, including passports, to continue working or getting NHS treatment. But many of them had arrived on their parents' passports and never applied for travel documents. I used to be a counsellor in Hackney, so people still contact me from time to time for help and assistance. And I looked at his information. I'm not an immigration lawyer, but I realised there was something fundamentally wrong. I noticed then there was a pattern, so I did a bit of research work, read all the various articles, contact with Amelia Gentleman at one stage, and I realised that actually this was a class action targeting the women's generation, particularly the children of the women's generation, and I launched my petition on the UK government website in March 2018. That was Patrick Vernon. He is one of the leading social activists of the Windrush scandal in the UK. You'll hear more from him in part two. In the second part of Generation Windrush, I'll be looking deeper into the issues the Windrush generation encountered, the racism and the sacrifices they had to make to support their families whilst they tried to adapt to British life, and the aftermath of the hostile environment leaving them stripped of their British identity. I've been your host, Jarja Mohammed. Make sure to tune in to part two of Generation Windrush. From your Broccoli Weekly, this is Generation Windrush, part two of a documentary special. I'm Jarja Mohammed. The COVID-19 crisis we're currently facing has highlighted a resounding truth for us all, that the National Health Service is an important part of our lives, and all those who are bravely working on the front line are national treasures. My grandparents' generation responded to the call from Great Britain and came over from the Caribbean in the 50s, 60s and early 70s in great numbers. I came to London, to England, during the Windrush period. There had been a drive from England because 
the British were looking for people from the colonies to come to help develop the country after the Second World War. I also felt very special, actually, that we were taking on this really, really heroic challenge and coming up to England to help the British develop the NHS. That was former NHS nurse Alison Williams. There's a deep connection between the NHS and the arrival of the Windrush merchant vessel, carrying nearly 500 Caribbean people to Britain. Both events happened in 1948. And to this day, in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis, many people from the Windrush generation are still serving on the front line, making huge sacrifices, and there's evidence to suggest that the coronavirus is having a disproportionate impact on people from ethnic minority backgrounds, over a third of which make up the critically ill coronavirus patients. So in mid-March of this year, just as COVID-19 was ramping up, a report was published and pretty much buried, detailing the appalling treatment of hundreds of Caribbean people threatened with deportation. The British government, under successive Conservative Home Secretaries, had created a deeply hostile environment for many West Indians, their children and grandchildren, who collectively became known as the Windrush Generation. In episode two of Generation Windrush, I want to get a clearer picture of what this recent Windrush scandal was all about. When did it start? Who was really responsible? And what happens next for people like me? In the spring of 2018, the Guardian newspaper broke a story which claimed that people from the Windrush generation and family members were being wrongfully detained, and in some cases deported. According to the Home Office, they had no rights to remain in the UK. I wanted to speak to three of the key people who helped to bring this scandal to light. One is an activist, one is a lawyer, and one is the journalist who broke this story for The Guardian, Amelia Gentleman. She's the author of the book The Windrush Betrayal, which is based on her time unravelling this story. Well, the reporting that I did at The Guardian began actually in late 2017, and it started with just one email from a charity in Wolverhampton. The outreach workers were very concerned about one of their clients, a woman called Paulette Wilson, who then was, I think, about 61. She was somebody who'd arrived from Jamaica in the 1960s, aged uh, 10, and who had lived in Britain Ever since, she hadn't left the country. Um, She'd had a daughter, granddaughter here, and she'd worked and paid taxes here all her life. Um, She'd even worked in the House of Commons for a while. She had received a number of letters from the Home Office um, in the 18 months, I think, before I spoke to her, telling her that she was in the UK illegally and was liable for detention and deportation. And I was contacted by the charity in Wolverhampton when she had, in fact, been arrested and was being detained in Yarlswood Detention Centre, which is a an immigration uh, detention centre for women only. She was shortly after that moved to Heathrow, put in another detention centre and was about to be put on a plane back to Jamaica when the, the charity and her local MP managed to intervene. And they they contacted me again after she'd been released to say that she did want to talk about what had happened to her, um, not least because it seemed so absurd that 
the Home Office had come so close to removing her and sending her back to a country that she hadn't even visited for 50 years. I interviewed her, we published her story in The Guardian, and at that time I was quite puzzled by what had happened to her. I wasn't sure whether it was just a really, really terrible mistake that the Home Office had made, or whether it was something that was happening more widely. And almost as soon as the piece was published in The Guardian, I began to get phone calls and emails from other people who said that they knew people who'd had uh, similar difficulties. At the heart of it was a misclassification problem by the Home Office, who had mistakenly classified thousands of people who had come to this country as children entirely legally as illegal immigrants and as a result of that misclassification people had had their lives turned upside down in really really horrific ways. My parents came to the UK as part of the Windrush generation. My father came from Jamaica in 1952. My mother came from Grenada in 1958. Uh, They settled in South London. I was born in 1962, the first of their children. You know, the Windrush story very much resonates with us. This is Jacqueline McKenzie. She's an immigration lawyer who's been working directly with the people who've been affected severely by this scandal. She's worked tirelessly to obtain documents to help individuals prove that they have a right to stay. My work as a solicitor specialising in immigration and asylum law brought me in contact with a lot of these cases many, many years ago. I'd say probably a decade ago, I was doing a number of cases where it was obvious to me there was an issue about people who had come to the UK in the 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s even who had no evidence to show that they had the right to be in the UK and were having to spend thousands of pounds applying to naturalise or for some other form of immigration status in order to be able to continue getting on with their lives. And around 2015, I was doing a training course for the High Commissioners and Ambassadors from the Caribbean region, the CARICOM region, where we were looking at a number of issues, but this issue came up. Now, we didn't describe it as a Windrush issue. We were just talking about people of a certain age who came over a certain period who were having to spend a lot of money. We hadn't really defined the issue in the way that it became known, but it's something that was on our radar. And of course, when the scandal broke in the media, it was obviously clear that this is exactly what we'd been talking about. It's becoming clear to me that what was happening to the Windrush generation wasn't accidental, but was by design. There's one other person I spoke to who helped to publicise what was happening to the Windrush generation. Well, I've been involved for the last 10 years plus campaigning for a National Windrush Day because I've done a lot of research work on the Windrush generation. My parents are from that generation. They came to Britain from Jamaica in the 50s. So I've always had that in my DNA, I suppose. That's Patrick Vernon, a political activist currently campaigning for a restorative justice compensation scheme for those affected by the Windrush scandal. Patrick has been fighting to make sure that the stories of the Windrush generation and those directly affected by it would never go away. I used to be a politician and local councillor in Hackney for about eight years. 
I stopped being a counsellor about four years now, maybe a bit longer. How I got involved with the scandal is I have a radio show in Hackney called Museum of Grooves, and the station manager, Alicia, contacted me and said, Patrick, um, I think there's someone who might be caught up in this hostile environment from the Caribbean. Can you have a chat with them? Uh, yeah, and I did. And uh, the person I actually spoke to was a Waldo Romeo. He came to Britain as a four-year-old from Antigua. I you know, grew up in Islington, worked for many years, got children, and he got one of these letters from the Home Office saying that basically you're a legal immigrant. The difference with his case compared to the other cases uh, is he did have a British passport, he did travel, he lost his passport and he wanted a new one, and for a period of about a decade, he was basically being fobbed off by the Home Office and the passport agency. They basically said, well, you know, we haven't got proof that you've had a British passport, and if you did, well, you know, we don't recognise that, and why don't you get an Antiguan passport? So he's been stuck in limbo. He's not been able to travel to Antigua for weddings, funerals, because he's not had a passport. So I looked into his case. I compared his case to other cases of people being caught up in the scandal. At the time, we didn't use the word the Windrush scandal. It was just like lots of individual Caribbean people who seemed to be fallen foul of the Home Office. And I recognised that this wasn't just a freak coincidence. This was a systematic discrimination of people who were children that came to Britain in the 50s and 60s. And I launched my petition on the government website basically saying there should be amnesty for people, compensation, and there should be a suspension of all deportation flights. It went live in just before Easter. It went ballistic. I mean, within about 10 days, I got over 100,000 signatures. Patrick's petition gathered momentum online. It raised awareness of what was happening to hundreds of Caribbean people in the UK who were being detained and deported. Someone on a similar mission was Amelia Gentleman. What was really interesting is how long it took for there to be any kind of political reaction. Every time we published a piece in The Guardian, I had to go to the Home Office and say, we are publishing a story about somebody who's been wrongly detained. Could you comment? And to begin with, their comments were very dismissive almost and almost blamed the individuals for their own problems, uh, saying that they needed to fill immigration forms in and they needed to pay application fees for these immigration applications and that they needed to get legal advice, even though it was kind of obvious that you couldn't get legal advice if you'd lost your job because there was no legal aid for this kind of issue. And you couldn't also fill in the forms and, and pay for the application fees because these fees ranged between about £230 and over £1,000. So if you'd lost your job, you couldn't sort it out. And so it wasn't really until April 2018 that there was any proper political response. And that really only happened because there was this international meeting of Commonwealth heads of government leaders in London. And the uh, leaders of the 12 Caribbean nations who had all begun to realise that people from their countries had been very, very badly affected by this problem, requested a meeting with Theresa May during this summit. And for whatever reason, Downing Street replied that Theresa May who was then Prime Minister, didn't have time for this meeting. And so when we published that piece on the front of The Guardian saying that there had been this snub, really, of the Caribbean leaders, that was the moment at which a story which had struggled to grab wider attention finally took off 
internationally. And within hours of that piece, Amber Rudd, who was then Home Secretary, and a number of other ministers were at the dispatch box in the House of Commons, uh, finally apologising for the appalling treatment of this group of people. One of the prominent people who signed Patrick Verner's petition was Labour MP David Lammy. Here's how he responded to Amber Rudd in the House of Commons. This is a day of national shame and it has come about because of a hostile environment policy that was begun under her Prime Minister. Let us call it as it is. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. And that is what has happened with this far-right rhetoric in this country. Can she apologise properly? Can she explain how quickly this team will act to ensure that the thousands of British men and women denied their rights in this country under her watch in the Home Office are satisfied? Amber Rudd denied that the Home Office had targets for expelling illegal immigrants from the UK. She said as much in front of the Home Office Select Committee. The suspicion was that the Windrush generation were part of a wider initiative to remove illegal immigrants across the UK. The vast majority of the Windrush generation under threat of deportation were not here illegally, even though the correct documentation was often hard to verify. A few days later, after her denial, Amber Rudd resigned. Now, in the last few minutes, while we've been on air, it's been announced that uh, Amber Rudd has resigned. Theresa May has accepted the resignation of the Home Secretary. Amber Rudd's resignation was proof that the Windrush generation was treated unfairly and unjustly by the British government. Here's Patrick Vernon. Ministers do resign over a whole range of issues. We we know that from history. But this was the first time I actually seen a government minister resign on the issue of race, and particularly about black people. Unprecedented. So for the very fact that she had to resign because she lied to Parliament, the government was on the back foot. They had to do something. They appointed the new Home Secretary. Then he announced a Windrush task force to fast-track people's status in Britain. They launched a consultation around uh, a compensation scheme for people. And then they decided to have an internal review of the Home Office called a Lessons Learned Review to review the Home Office and the Windrush scandal over a 10 to 12 year period. The Lessons Learned review became known as the Windrush Report, and this review happened to land at the same time as COVID-19. As a result, it kind of disappeared. The government's hostile environment policy impacted people differently, but the result was the same. Some of the effects were loss of citizenship, housing, financial and emotional trauma, and overall humiliation. Many were deported and even refused entry back into the UK after going on holiday. As an immigration lawyer, Jacqueline McKenzie has worked on hundreds of cases with people who faced deportation in the last few years, but many still haven't received any compensation for the trauma they've been put through. Well, the Windrush Compensation Scheme was set up to, I suppose, you know, provide for the losses that anybody encountered. And it's quite an interesting thing because it is really for the losses. And so a lot of people caught up in the Windrush scandal aren't easily able to demonstrate any losses. It's not a redress scheme. It's can you show that you had a job on this date and that you lost it as a result of a decision made by the Home Office on another date? Um, And so the numbers of people who are going to qualify under this scheme are going to be very low indeed. However, We've seen in the press 
that only, I think it's something like 30-something people have received any compensation at all. I think the figures that were quoted were about 60-something thousand pounds. Um, so it all seems very negligible and, and really quite disappointing, to be honest. The, those figures came out a few weeks ago, so things may well have moved on since then. Up until very recently, and remember, we're almost two years into the scandal, but it was appalling. COVID-19 is at the centre of all our worlds at this moment. And as I found out over these programmes, there's a real connection between the current coronavirus, the National Health Service and the Windrush generation. And many are still working on the front line in the NHS. In mid-March, the Windrush report came out, but the timing wasn't quite right. It is a really, really powerful report. It's done by a civil servant, Wendy Williams, who was asked by Sajid Javid when he was Home Secretary to take on the task of trying to find out what had caused this horrific problem and why it hadn't been picked up by the Home Office sooner. And she has done an incredibly forensic job. It was really unfortunate that it came out at the end of March, just before the country went into total lockdown. I went to the press conference just as it was being launched. And it was, I think, probably the last time I went out for a work meeting and even at that point, all of the journalists were being positioned at two metre distances from each other. But inevitably, it didn't get the political attention which it deserves because of this global crisis. I don't think it was a kind of Machiavellian move by the government to deliberately bury it. I think it was very, very unfortunate. And I think that people who are concerned about this issue will not let it drop and will have to return to the report's findings once Parliament is back up and running and once this other crisis has slightly receded. And certainly the author of the report, Wendy Williams, has said that she's going to do a check, I think after six months on the Home Office, to see whether they are taking stock of, of her recommendations. Although its release is welcomed, political activist Patrick Vernon still believes there's more work to do. It's important that... Uh, even during this period, we need to put pressure on the government to start a process around the implementation of Wendy Williams' 30 recommendations. And even though Wendy Williams didn't use the word institutional racism to the Home Office, she used the word institutional ignorance. If you look at her 30 recommendations, all the recommendations around the culture, the mindset, policies, the procedures, the training, the lack of knowledge of black history, uh, colonial history, migration history, basically points to the fact that they are institutionally racist. So if, if Wendy can't say it, I'll say it for her, the Home Office is institutionally racist, which means that these recommendations, not only do they have to be implemented, they have to be an independent oversight. So I asked immigration lawyer Jacqueline McKenzie what she thinks are the next steps. There needs to be a whole-scale discussion about this community, which includes with it structures and systemic changes so that we even out some of the inequalities that this community has suffered and whether we call it reparations or redress. But I really do think that the what next is recognising the value of this community, treating them with respect and ironing out some of the inequalities that keeps this, you know, this particular generation and its descendants at the bottom of society.
This story is about the close ties between the Windrush and the hardships that many people have faced at the hands of the government. And in this particular time, I feel it's important to acknowledge and be grateful to this Windrush generation for pushing through, then and now. And again, with COVID-19, we have more reasons than we knew to be thankful for their contributions. I want to leave the last words to the former NHS nurse, Alison Williams. But first, storyteller and author of the book Homecoming, Colin Grant. I want us to remember these people as triumphant people whom we owe so much. I think we have to think about the importance of intergenerational conversations. Too often we just keep to our own group, don't we? Our own peer group. You and I and any broadcaster, any person involved in the media maybe needs to encourage people to think what it is that they get from life, what it is that that they value. And storytelling sustains us. Marcus Garvey argued time and time again that a people without a culture and a history is like a tree without a root. And I just think we need to remind people of that, that actually without these stories you are rootless, you are unanchored. You are a cast adrift. So stories anchor us and stories give us meaning. You know, for a lot of us, life took over because many of my colleagues that I mentioned who started with me, the wish was we would train as nurses, midwives, and then go and give back. We were meant to, most of us, go back to the Caribbean. But, um, you know, many of us got overtaken by love and marriage and children and mortgages. (laughs) And so we stayed here. This is Generation Windrush. Thanks for contributions from Alison Williams, Jacqueline McKenzie, Patrick Vernon, Amelia Gentleman and Colin Grant. I've been your host, Jaja Mohammed. Dior is back next week with Your Broccoli Weekly. Thanks for listening.